Even a man who is pure in heart and listens to his podcasts by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Yeah. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Welcome to the season of Spoop. Yes. Yes, we are. Kicking off the month of October with our first season of Spoop episode, and the theme for this year is going to be Ooh, motherfucking werewolves, y'all. Oh, yeah. So, first year we did movies that take place on Halloween, second year was last year was witches, and this year we're doing what might be my favorite kind of supernatural creature cryptid that's kind of in the popular cultural relevancy is werewolves and you know we've mentioned it before i want more werewolf horror that actually is good but this is a good chance for us to explore some werewolf genre movies literally like you had mentioned earlier in our introduction we do all ages all subgenres. uh we're starting from the beginning we're going all the way back it's not necessarily the very first werewolf movie but it is like the one that popularized the genre i would argue yeah we're going back to the 1940s baby because we are doing the Wolfman. Hell yeah. For this episode to start off our Halloween season of spoop month of all kinds of fun, spooky werewolf howling at the moon, whatever. Ozzy Osbourne. Is it Bark at the bark Moon? At the Ozzy moon. Osbourne? Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, we are going to be doing hopefully three episodes this month. That's kind of how the weeks fall. So we are going to do an all werewolf month and uh, we've got some fun shit coming up. And some good guests lined up as well, too. So, before we dig into this movie, let's discuss a couple of recommendations that we've got. So, Derek, let's go ahead and start with you, my bro. Oh, man. So, I'm excited. I've been kind of chomping at the bit for us to record because I have a bunch of recommendations and they are all movies. Hell yeah. Which is very unlike me. And these are, I'm pretty sure you've seen all these movies, Aaron. So, we can kind of go back and forth as we talk about this. So, so I'll start off with the stuff that isn't necessarily capital H horror, but it's very horror adjacent. I've been in this hotel room. You know, we're waiting for our housing since we moved here. And so we're kind of living out of a extended stay hotel. Savannah started work and I've had Autumn. Well, my little girl, Apple, my eye, she naps a lot during the day. And <laughs> there's not much I can do when she's doing that. So I just decided to start watching movies. For some reason, I decided to throw on Parasite. 2019's Parasite, the South Korean black comedy thriller movie directed by Bong Joon-ho, won Best Picture, all kinds of praise. This movie is amazing. <laughs> like, I don't know what else there is to say about it. Yeah. It is a lot funnier than I was expecting it to be. It's a lot more horrifying than I was expecting it to be. And the reason why I think this is a good horror recommendation is the fucking, like, second act of this <laughs> yeah. movie. This is, like, especially in the last 20 minutes, is some of the scariest shit I think I've seen in a while. And it's not, like, jump scare scary. I mean, just fucking violent and grimdark and... 
and like tragic, but also still having enough comedy in it to like, you know, make me laugh in these very intense parts. I don't want to give away too much because if you have not seen Parasite, Jesus Christ, it's on Hulu. You can watch it on Hulu right now. I'm sure it's in a bunch of other places you can stream. Go watch it, then come back and listen to this. But when the movie takes that turn, when the family is in the house by themselves during that storm and the old nanny shows back up, <laughs> yeah. when that movie takes that turn, that's where we get into real like borderline horror movie territory. This movie has a ton of shit to say about all kinds of things. I mean, the, the most obvious one is like class warfare. The title Parasite is very on the nose because like everyone is a parasite of each other throughout this entire movie. And like that's the thing I love is that no one's completely evil and no one's good. They're just people. It's just very gray area. Just people are doing the right and wrong thing, but things just get out of hand, kind of beyond their control. It's just fascinating to see the dominoes fall in place in this movie. Bong Joon-ho, also, I kind of was just looking stuff up about him. If you don't know who this is, he did Snowpiercer back in 2013. He did... The Host, which is a 2006 creature feature like Korean movie, which I've seen, I saw a while back and really loved. And we should cover that movie eventually on our our show. But back in 2012, he had mentioned the 10 films that had the biggest impact on his own sensibilities as a filmmaker. It was interesting because like he he named stuff like Psycho, Fargo, and Zodiac, those US films. But then he also had a horror film from Japan called Cure, which I also looked up and we also should probably do on our show eventually because that looks fascinating. Fascinating. He also had Vengeance as Mine, um, which is all about a serial killer. After reading all this and also seeing how much Martin Scorsese was like a big influence on him, like I get it. I see all of that kind of bleeding into Parasite. So it is phenomenal black comedy thriller, like borderline horror movie. When the mom is describing when the little boy thought he saw a ghost in their house, oh, that's so good. That whole scene <laughs> was fucking terrifying. Yeah, but yeah, what like I mean, what else can you say about Parasite, man? It's such a fun phenomenal movie yeah absolutely that's one that i want to go back and rewatch. you know just had that itch for some reason well and we we've talked about it we talked about it on the whaling south korea is putting out a lot of good shit man and they have been oh, yeah. for well over a decade now it seems like yeah totally i start off with that but <laughs> this is gonna make you laugh i did a double feature with that movie on the same day i decided to pop in pg psycho Goreman. hell yeah which is on shutter if you're wondering we have talked about psycho Goreman a couple times on this show but i finally sat down and watched it it is a science fiction fantasy horror comedy written and directed by steven kostansky of astron 6 which i think astron 6 is like a film development company yeah they did a lot of stuff that specifically kind of riffs on other genres so they started with this movie called Manborg, and then they did the editor which is riffing on like giallo movies and then they did the void this is not my original thought obviously but like it's kind of a mix of like assault on precinct 13 halloween 2 the thing and then like a good spoonful of hellraiser thrown in yeah so this is definitely like a mashup of all of that 90s slightly power rangery the giver kind of style stuff like it's very much that yeah it's very of that genre i forget the technical term for that genre of action shows that are live action from japan where like kids are turning into like basically power rangers sentai sentai yeah i think it's like one big 
giant sentai mashup making fun of it also kind of endearingly like as a homage to it oh yeah imagine the power rangers movie and ivan ooze instead of being kind of this goofy villain ivan ooze is a fucking like warlord who can like cause people's heads to explode and like <laughs> turns their bodies into like artwork and stuff like that but he gets like his come up it's done by like a 12 year old little girl who is like yeah. high on sugar basically and hyper and is kind of a bully to her brother but yeah the premise is they resurrect an extraterrestrial overlord who was imprisoned on earth and i fucking laughed so hard when like the council of aliens are like he's been resurrected whoever resurrected him must be a genius to solve that puzzle and it's just like her hitting fucking random buttons <laughs> on like yeah. the puzzle box <laughs> thing the scene that made me laugh so hard and it's like kind of i guess the closest thing to horror is like when the kids walk in to the warehouse where psycho gorman has been and he he already killed like those criminals that were hiding out in there and like the lights come on and they turn around and one guy is just standing there and he's like a zombie and his eyes keep rolling back in his head multiple times and then they turn over to the wall and he's turned the other guy like completely like eviscerated his body and turned it into like artwork on like the chain link fence like yeah like like hellraiser (laughs) style and it is so funny it is so good the the soundtrack is amazing like totally riff on like the power rangers theme like go go power rangers and like air guitar like guitar solos and you have people doing flips when they shouldn't be i love when monsters are fighting it looks like old school power rangers where they it just looks shitty even though they're supposed to be like these all-powerful like alien warlords and it's just like guys in rubber masks just trying to beat each other up all the character designs are so fucking good, too. Like, when all of his lieutenants show up, yep. and there's the one dude that's literally just, like, a giant vat full of blood guts that yes. shoots it out of its arms, <laughs> and then there's the other monster that's just, like, made out of tombstones and vines and shit. Yeah, it's great character design, and all the effects in it are pretty great. To borrow, like, a line from Spinal Tap, this movie really does crank it to 11. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, it is one of the best horror comedies I've seen in quite a long time. This movie made me smile from start to finish. It's so fucking good. It's bloody. It's hilarious. I don't know what else there is to say about Psycho Gorman. It's probably my favorite movie from 2020, like out of all the ones I've seen. It was so fucking good. Now let's really move into horror territory. For some reason, I decided that I wanted to go through the entirety of the Halloween franchise. Okay. And when I when I mean that, I mean start the 1978 John Carpenter Hall original Halloween. Yeah, all the way through. And I'm gonna go all the way through, and I'm playing. I'm watching everything. I'm planning on watching H2O, Halloween Resurrection, which is very ill-fated from what I hear. I'm planning on watching the Rob Zombie remakes, and then eventually I'm going to catch up to the Halloween from last year, and then Halloween Kills, which is pretty much just come out at the time that this episode drops we are going to eventually do the halloween movies like i mean we already did halloween 3 but that has nothing to do with michael myers so i skipped halloween 3 in my viewings because like i wanted to focus more on the michael myers i've seen halloween 3 like four times now it had been a long time since i had gone back to the original halloween i hadn't seen it in maybe a decade so i'm gonna like say little blurbs about each you know you and i can talk a little bit about it but i'm not gonna spend too much time on each individual movie that i've watched so far because again we are going to do these eventually down the line starting off with the original halloween halloween 1978 john carpenter's movie it's a perfect horror movie i don't know what else there is to say about that yeah when you think of the 
best slasher movie of all time, I would probably pick Halloween over anything else. Now, granted, I do personally like Black Christmas, 1974's Black Christmas, more, but it's undeniable. Take my opinion out of it. Just from a critical standpoint, I think Halloween is the ultimate slasher film. It is the maybe even the ultimate horror movie. It's just perfect from start to finish. The pacing of it is phenomenal. The fact that Michael Myers is kind of in a weird, twisted way, like a lot more human in this movie than in any other movie. Granted, yeah, he does like get stabbed in the neck and shot a bunch, but still lives. But that's all at the end. Throughout the movie, like when he's just stalking people, it's just someone being a stalker. I forgot how long it is before he actually kills anyone. Yeah, He spends a lot of time just fucking with people and just watching them from the background. And there's so many shots throughout this movie that Carpenter did masterfully where you can see him in the background. But the focus is on the two characters that are just walking down the street and talking about their plans with their dates that night. I do still stand by like, you know, Black Christmas might be like the Dinosaur Jr. And this might be like the Nevermind Nirvana. But like, it's undeniable that Halloween is like a perfect horror movie. Oh, yeah. If you are a horror fan in any capacity and you have not seen 1978's Halloween, Jesus fucking Christ, stop what you're doing. And go watch it. Like, I don't try and be gatekeepy about stuff that I like. But like, this is a must must watch. Like, you cannot call yourself a slasher fan if you haven't seen 1978's Halloween. I hope this movie is studied in films classes like across the country. It's just phenomenal. Carpenter does everything in this movie because he he also did the soundtrack for this movie as well too, right? Beyond like directing and writing it. So something I wanted to ask you, Aaron, is how much did Deborah Hill like contribute to the writing and the production of this movie? Because I was reading up a bit on her too after watching it. I mean, a good bit. She's one of those unsung heroes of not just Carpenter's career, but a lot of people's careers. She was kind of a beast and wore many, many hats and was just kind of one of those people that always was you know, behind the camera and didn't necessarily get a lot of the same attention as everybody else, but she did a lot for a lot of productions. So she's definitely kind of critical to making all this stuff work as well. Yeah, because I saw that she helped Carpenter produce and write The Fog, Escape from New York, and Halloween 2. And then she was was a producer on Halloween 3, The Dead Zone, which we covered, Clue, Big Top Pee Wee. We're putting on a brand new show. What kind of showball? I'll tell you what kind of snow showball, snowball. Escape from LA, like all kinds of genre films. I don't know, like I just, it really just hit me like when you're watching a movie. It almost felt like watching Halloween for the first time because like I said, it had been over a decade since I watched it. I still, even then, like I think I was technically 20, older than 21. I was technically a young adult, but like I still don't think I appreciated this movie back then. Sure. And now that we've watched a lot of horror movies and I have a better appetite for cinema in general as a 33 year old he makes it look easy this is the type of movie that i imagine people watch and this is one of their movies that like makes them want to be a filmmaker and makes them want to try their hand at a horror movie someday down the line and i get why this movie it was like riffed on so much throughout the years and still is to this day i don't know i just i don't know what else there is to say about the original halloween we'll definitely come back to it eventually down the line on our podcast now unfortunately (laughs) going from that the other two that i've watched so far are halloween Halloween 2, and then Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Halloween 2 is not a bad movie. 
But to borrow a term from like video games, it feels more like an expansion pack of Halloween 1. Yeah. It feels kind of like Halloween 1.5, but not in a good way. It doesn't quite capture the magic and the mystique of the first Halloween, even though it still feels like just Halloween 1.5. Yeah, it's very much just kind of repeating a lot of the same beats from the first movie, just in a different setting. That's basically what it is. I mean, it's just Halloween, but in a hospital which i'm cool with and it does kind of the shitty thing where jamie lee curtis is kind of on the sidelines through most of the movie yeah i was kind of surprised at like how much she's not in this movie <laughs> yeah well and like so the things i like about it is i do love the hospital setting even though in other 80s horror movies that take place in a hospital that we've watched the hospital is really bare yeah like, <laughs> there seem to be like five people working the entire hospital like then you have like nurses abandoning little babies in the nursery and stuff like that to go have sex in the boiler room it has those kind of tropes but like some of that is fun and the idea of michael myers stalking throughout a hospital is pretty fun like some the kills are quite hilarious to me like everything with the like boiler room bubble bath was ridiculous. pretty it was ridiculous <laughs> i like i love those two kills where it really loses me and this is a common criticism of the movie but i fucking hate the idea that laurie strode is technically his sister i hate that they added that in this movie yeah what makes halloween so scary or part of what makes it so scary is that michael myers just seems to target her and her friends randomly just because she was yeah, there it's literally because she drops off the key at the old house at the old house where he kind yep. of like sees her and becomes fixated with her specifically. Yes. That's the reason why this series is so fucking messy from a timeline and, like, story standpoint. Let alone all the weird, like, Cult of Thorn shit that you're gonna get into later. Which I've only barely scratched the surface of that, yeah. Yeah, like... All of that stuff goes fucking bananas. So, yeah, you've got a lot to go. But once you get into, like, the later sequels and then, of course, like, the, you know, reboots that just happened, that's where everything kind of gets really messy. And I think it all stems from the fact that they tried to tie them together through family. Family. You know, and, and this is a fucking hot take. Say what you will about the Rob Zombie movies. I know they're still controversial within, like, the horror community. Community. I generally enjoy them. I also like number two, which is a weird fucking swing with some of the stuff that he does. And at least you can say, like, he made it his own, right? For better or worse. But I think his movies do a better job of making the family shit work than the original main series. That's, I think, the thing that does really work about the zombie movies is the focus on family. Because in the old movies, it comes and goes. It's important one time, it's not important others. The timeline is all fucking weird. So, you know, okay, get get further into it. And and then we can maybe talk a little bit more. Yeah, but before we get into all that, the two scenes that drove me up a wall in this, in Halloween 2, were it should have never left the hospital. Granted, the only scenes outside the hospital should have been like Loomis going to the hospital when he figures out Michael. Myers is going there to finish a job. Otherwise, it should have stuck in the hospital, but the the two scenes that take me out of the film completely are the one where they go to the 
school and like written on the wall in blood is Sam Hain. It's just like Michael Myers came to this elementary school and wrote Sam Hain on the wall. That must mean like there's something going on with Colt behavior that gives him his his invulnerability and why he can't be killed. I hated that fucking scene. You just wait. Oh no, I know. I know it gets (laughs) way worse, but I hated that fucking scene. And then I hate that scene when he's in the car and like they reveal like Laurie Strode was adopted and actually his sister and just so happened lived in the same town as him. Anyway, so I hated all that shit. But the thing that's going to get kind of wonky is when I get to Halloween H2O and Resurrection, which ignore four, five, and six, but still keep Halloween one and two canon. Yes. But then you get to like Rob Zombie things are their own thing. And then you get to the one from last year and Halloween kills this year, which what I do like is what they do is they ignore every movie except for the original 1978 Halloween. Laurie Strode is not related to Michael Myers as far as I know. That's what I'm most excited for. Like, and I've heard that as far as like movies go, H2O isn't bad. The Rob Zombie movies are their own thing and have a lot of fans. So I'm excited about those. I've heard Halloween Resurrection is fucking god awful. I've heard Curse of Michael Myers, Halloween 6 is terrible. I've heard Halloween 5 isn't the best. Uh, so, so I, here's the thing my opinion on the sequels is sometimes contrary to what the like larger horror community is you know there are ones that i kind of like that i know a lot of people are not huge on necessarily but i would say despite kind of already knowing that they're gonna be a mess try to just keep your mind open as you're going into them because honestly i really dig four so yes i think four is maybe my favorite sequel period of all of them obviously not counting halloween three but four is probably my favorite of all the sequels so of the three michael myers movies because again for our listeners who are keeping up i watched the original halloween halloween 2 and halloween 4 the return of michael myers of halloween 2 and halloween 4 i liked halloween 4 more than halloween 2 i think halloween 4 is actually a pretty solid horror movie ignoring a little bit of all the bullshit where like his niece sort of might have like psychic ability yeah uh, to like sense (laughs) when he's near which granted i know they're gonna like go way more into that five and six but four kind of touches on that i do think it kind of sucks that they just kill off laurie strode like plot before the movie began and but i understand that because like they probably gonna get jamie lee curtis back on board the thing about halloween 2 that kind of also bothers me is there's still enough of a carpenter presence in this movie because like he helped co-write it and he still did the soundtrack even though it wasn't directed by him but like you can tell he like was dragging his feet on this project and was like he did not want to like return to michael myers he wanted halloween to be and michael myers to be a one and done and I remember you telling me that Halloween was originally supposed to be an anthology movie. Yeah. And like he could have ignored that and went on. But it seemed like there was a lot of studio demand of we want another Halloween movie. And John Carpenter even like I remember reading that apparently he would just sit at his typewriter while writing this movie and get drunk and be like, what the fuck am I doing? (laughs) That's kind of what Halloween 2 feels like. So the reason why I like Halloween 4 more is that no involvement from him. It seems like everyone who is kind of involved with 4 is just like the new class coming in to like continue the story and I kind of like that because while it's obviously nowhere near as good as the original Halloween if they're going to milk a franchise like Halloween 4 is not a bad sequel I agree with you it has some pretty solid scares if you're gonna go Michael Myers as full-blown Terminator like this is the way to do it I love the ending to Halloween 4 and I don't want to say what happens because it's kind of a nice twist but I I'm already ready to be disappointed because I know they kind of rewrite that for Halloween 5 and like redo 
some stuff to make it to where it like it's not necessarily the case. But as far as long-term franchise sequels, Halloween 4 is pretty solid. I love that Halloween 4, like by this point, Michael Myers is known by like the police force and like the town at large. So when people finally figure out, oh shit, he really is back, it's time to rally the troops. But because it's a bunch of like dumbasses trying to do it, like, you know, there's that scene where they accidentally kill the wrong person and like, yeah. but it was pretty satisfying like at the very end when like everyone just fucking unloads all their guns into him and he falls down the mine shaft. Like that was a pretty solid like end to the slasher for this movie. But yeah, it, Halloween 4 does really lean heavily into like Laurie Strode as part of the Myers family because it's now Michael Myers going after her daughter, his niece, Jamie Lloyd. You know, if they were going to do it, this was the way to do it. But I stopped here. I haven't watched five or six yet. I have heard some really interesting things about the Thorn trilogy in general and all the cult bullshit that is about to happen. Donald Pleasant still puts in like the work, even in Halloween 4. He's still trying to like take in this movie on his shoulders and carrying it through like enemy fire. Like it doesn't matter how many of these movies he's in. He really seems like he's bringing his A game or as much as he can every time. Yeah. But yeah, no, I agree with you. I think Halloween 4 is pretty solid. Now, my take, which might be a little bit of a hot take, out of the Michael Myers movies that I've watched, I did compare Halloween 3 to these movies. And obviously Halloween 1 is a masterpiece. That's untouchable. I think Halloween 3 is better than either 2 or 4 by a pretty good long shot, in my opinion. Yes, it has nothing to do with Michael Myers, but if we're going to look at the franchise as a whole, I will count 3. I do think 3 is a better, more creative horror movie that has a lot more fun than either 2 or 4, but that's just me. I would say it's certainly more entertaining than 2. And as far as plot creativity and bullshit's concerned, yes, absolutely, because that is a fucking bananas movie. Yeah, it just is. And maybe that's why I like it more, because it's so fucking bananas. You know, I genuinely think it is a very, very well-directed movie as well. I think Tommy Lee Wallace is fairly underrated as a director, so I definitely have a soft spot for three, obviously, like we both do, but um, four, I think, is still kind of my favorite of the, like, Michael Myers sequels for sure would you include like h2o resurrection and the rob zombie movies like do you think four is better than those as well yeah i mean definitely better than like the later of the michael myers sequels the rob zombie movies honestly i really do kind of see those as completely separate things like its own universe kind of yeah Yeah. i mean like if i want to completely break them off i can kind of like in the same way with the david gordon green movies that have just come out like i can completely separate those if i need to I don't really have that weird mental baggage in the same way that a lot of other people do. Partly, I guess, because I've grown up with this entire series. All these other later sequels came out, and I watched them as they were coming out, and just, again, like, how disconnected they already were. So for me, like, it's always been a mess, you know? Yeah. And I can kind of compartmentalize and pick and choose the ones I do like and kind of put together my own, like, here's my favorites, and that's the series I want to stick with. Yeah. I kept saying Halloween that came out last year. It technically came out in 2018. Halloween Kills is coming out this this year but uh i'm trying to keep my expectations low but it was really hard to watch the original halloween and then immediately go into two and four and just be like oh man this isn't more of that <laughs> like i do think halloween arguably might be john carpenter's best movie and i know that's kind of a take because he's done so much good shit like the thing and escape from new york but he just seems like this is like the pinnacle of his filmmaking ability i don't know it's just when you can watch a master work and you can feel it and realize 
realize you're watching something special like there's nothing better in the world when it comes to like consuming art of any kind uh and that's how i felt about the first halloween so i did kind of hit the pause after halloween 4 because halloween 4 was relatively enjoyable but i was feeling a little down that it wasn't just neither 2 or 4 were just more halloween and like i know 5 and 6 and then resurrection which is kind of right around the corner after that are all real giant messes so like i just kind of i wanted to like pause there lower my expectations again and i'll get back to it so probably by the time we record our next episode i'll i'll have more to say about five six and maybe some of the other ones okay cool so as far as uh my recommendations go i've got nothing but movies so the first i will start with is the believers which is an 80s film starring martin sheen that is about a cult in new york that is murdering children and making it look as if there is some Santeria stuff going on. Huh. I will kind of leave it at that. It's an early movie for Jimmy Smits. There's lots of other character actors in it. It was interesting. I think I enjoyed it enough, despite some of the obvious ethnocentric weird stuff going on that's obviously not so... so yeah, that was my question. Now, right? is like, how did it age from like a racial standpoint? That would be my biggest concern about this. I mean, it's not the worst, obviously, like because this movie at least means well, and I don't feel like it's trying to be exploitative. Gotcha. I think it just kind of naively ends up being a little bit exploitative. I think overall, like, like the idea is interesting. Uh, Martin Sheen is given a pretty good performance in it. Jimmy Smith is pretty good. It was interesting enough, I think. So it was weird because I had heard about this movie for a while. One weekend that I was crashing at my parents' house for work, my mom and I watched Marathon Man. That's directed by John Schlesinger. Then all of a sudden I like found the believers on Amazon prime and noticed, Oh, this is also directed by John Schlesinger like the next day. So I went ahead and popped it on and watched it. Uh, it's definitely got some like genuinely creepy shit in it. And it's got some very interesting. I kind of wish they had maybe gone down these paths a little bit more stuff in it, but overall, like it was surprisingly interesting. I was expecting it to be a lot more dry than that. Yeah. I love the movie poster for it. It's kind of like an outline of New York city with all these people's faces in it and it's kind of in this weird reddish orange and black color scheme and font yeah so that one was pretty good um again that is on amazon prime as of right now and then we kind of took a fucking nosedive or at least i did into saw hell yeah (laughs) we need to get lauren back on our podcast so you can talk more saw with her so like i've mentioned before we tried watching all of them we have gotten stalled so many times because those movies are just not my cup of tea for some reason i can't remember why the other night we were just like yeah fuck it we haven't finished that let's get back into that so we start back with four because we think that's where we are and as we're like 20 minutes into four we kind of realize oh wait we have watched this one already (laughs) that's how much they like fucking blend together so you know we fast forwarded through four just to skip around and like get the main like okay i remember this i remember this i remember this okay we're good and then we went on to five and six and five is one that i hear people say all the time is the worst five is the worst one five is the bottom of the franchise honestly i think it was that bad okay it was just real generic 
toss away and this plot wasn't necessarily that interesting because all of these kind of immediate sequels are just who is the successor to Jigsaw? Like who is the one actually pulling the strings this time? I could see how that would be then regarded as the worst one because I would way prefer either like something that is surprisingly really good or a complete beautiful failure as opposed to something that just like is average and just doesn't do anything really. Yeah, and it was certainly easily guessable and generic. The entire time Heather and I are sitting there yelling at the TV like, we know exactly what's going on. The characters are all fucking idiots, you know? Six, I have heard, on the other hand, is the high point of all the sequels. I will say it is a cut above in the sense that it has a little bit more to say beyond fucking Jigsaw's general like, you did bad shit, you didn't appreciate your life, so I'm gonna make you uh, value life again. (laughs) This movie is hypercritical of insurance companies. (laughs) <laughs> and the health healthcare industry, right? Hell so like yeah. it's literally just this fucking insurance CEO getting put through like the gauntlet of all these fucking traps that all of his employees are like jammed into. Sure, why not? Yeah, so it's just him like as the boss running the entire show having to make decisions that cost people their lives essentially. And you kind of find out what Jigsaw's connection was with this and the other killer who is, or killers. mm, Oh my god. (laughs) Who were kind of involved with carrying on his legacy, right? Yeah. So that one was interesting, at least because it had some more on its mind, right? And and we stopped there with Saw. Like, we were just kind of like, okay, I think we're good for a little bit. We'll jump back in this at at a later date. So from there, we watched the 2003 remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I thought it was exhausting to watch the Halloween franchise, but you did two franchises, and you did two franchises that I not necessarily, like, envy you. I saw it seems way more involved than Halloween, and then the remakes of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm very curious to hear what you think, because I remember watching the remake to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre back in the aughts and fucking hating it, but I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, let's just say... It's bad. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) So we both listened to a newish episode of Austerian, which is a podcast that's kind of slightly a spinoff of the Attack of the Queer Wolf podcast. They are specifically kind of going back and revisiting all these aughts era horror movies that people generally just despise and shit on. Guilty as charged. And they're, you know, finding kind of novel and interesting ways to discuss them. And I've been enjoying it simply because I enjoy the takes from the hosts, but also, you know, it does kind of help recontextualize movies that that I haven't seen in years, you know, so maybe go back and look at them with fresh eyes now. Also looking back at some of the like greater pop culture stuff happening at the time and kind of how these movies ended up the way that they are, right? So they did an episode on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake and that kind of got a bug in both Heather and I to like rewatch it. So we did. I still generally kind of feel the same about it. Like it's not the worst, but I also just really don't care for it. Yeah. It's one of those that goes way, way, way out of its way to be extra gross, extra grimy. That's what I remember about it. Extra, like, in no way, shape, or form do you 
ever buy that anybody in this town is trustworthy on the level or not somehow like scheming to kill all these teenagers. There's no twist. There's no surprise to it. There's no tension. You know that they're just there. They're all going to get killed one by one. And that's it. And it doesn't really strive to do anything new or different necessarily. And I know I just mentioned how like I wasn't old enough yet to really appreciate the original Halloween. But I remember watching the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre when I was like 17 years old. You know, it was like one of those college nights. One of the last few times we went to Blockbuster before all the Blockbusters shut down. And, you know, renting horror movies was always a thing. And we rented the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and we watched it. And I remember back then, even as like a 17-year-old watching it and being like, this feels different. This feels like something that changed the genre. And I kind of recognize that immediately, even as a teenager. And then I remember like the following weekend, we decided to like rent the remake because the remake had recently like kind of come out and finally had dropped on DVD. For our young audience who are too young to remember, you used to have to wait months, sometimes maybe a year before something would like be available like on video, DVD or whatever. And you know, it finally just come arrived at Blockbuster. So we got excited and we rented it, watched it. And I was like, this movie missed the whole whole fucking point of the original completely and that was like my main takeaway from it was like i was super disappointed in it they watched the original texas chainsaw massacre but i feel like they took the wrong points from it yeah there was only one scene that i really liked in the remake it's the scene where like she's in a car and she's trying to turn it on and she finally turns on the car the headlights pop up and you see her boyfriend's face and then you realize it's no it's leatherface wearing his face yeah and that's a pretty good scare like that was like one of the only parts of that entire movie that i actually liked but yeah i remember just that movie pissing me off so much like i said it's fine you know i won't say it is absolutely awful but it does just miss the point entirely and i think if we're not comparing it to the original like maybe it's a little bit better but again there's no tension in it at all because spoilers i guess for fucking texas chainsaw literally the first movie we covered on this show it's you know almost 50 years old deep The scene where Marilyn... Uh, I was about to say Marilyn Chambers, not Marilyn Chambers. The scene where she gets out of the house, runs to the gas station, and you think she's safe. Until you realize, oh shit, the gas station guy from earlier is part of this family. He knocks her out, drags her back to the house, and then she's just right back where she fucking started, right? That's such a good fuck you kind of twist. Yeah, it is. And in this one, the twist is supposed to be that the sheriff was part of this family the whole time. But again, at no point with all the sheriff stuff at the beginning do you ever think that he is on the level right there's no fucking surprise there yeah, i remember i remember him basically saying i'm going to be a bad guy later <laughs> like, yeah like i said it just goes out of its way it, it's very very try hard and it's obviously directed by a music video guy so it's very flashy and it's hardness yeah. you know which is kind of weird and off-putting the opening scene which i've seen a lot of fans debate and i want to get what you thought about it since you just recently watched it but like that opening where like like the girl shoots herself in the head and like the camera kind of goes through the bullet wound out of the back of her head. I've seen a lot of people say like that sucks. It's a really try hard horror movie scene. And then other horror fans are like, no, that, that's a pretty, pretty neat and haunting way to begin the movie. What were your thoughts about like that part? 
specifically. I mean, the camera shot and the effect itself are novel, and it's the same DP that shot the original movie, right? This is just kind of his, well, I did the swing shot in the first movie that everybody talks about still, so let me do something different here. Yeah. And it's a novel and interesting effect, but... It's still just totally a like, hey, fuck you. This isn't your daddy's Texas Chainsaw Mask. Yeah, like that's how rad. This shit is. You that's know? exactly how I felt about it. So anyway, yeah. After we watched that, I kind of realized, like, oh yeah, I have not actually watched any of the fucking Texas Chainsaw remake sequels. Sequels, right? <laughs> and and not just remake sequels, but remake reboots and reboot remakes and just every fucking combination of those things you could think of. So, we have the 2003 Platinum Dunes, Michael Bay, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? And then we have Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Beginning, which came out three years later. It's really dull, really boring. It shows you all the shit that you already know from the first movie that was already explained to you in the first movie. You're just now explicitly seeing it. So, none of it's necessarily, like, revelatory because it's all shit that you learned in the first movie anyway. The movie is trying to have a point of view about the war. You know, so this is set, obviously, in the 70s. So this is about Vietnam explicitly. Does Fortunate Son play at any point? I believe so, yes. Are you kidding me? I was making a joke. I believe so. (laughs) Yeah, but it's these two brothers, one of whom has been to Nam already, is very hard up to go back, kind of has a sociopathic edge because he just loves the thrill of the war and murdering people, right? And then you have the younger brother who's, like, been drafted, does not want to go, is doing everything he can to keep from going, ultimately is a little more sympathetic because he 100% does not want to go get into that situation. And and so the movie is trying to have a point of view about the war in the Middle East, which was going at the point in time that this movie was being made. And the younger brother is Leatherface. I don't know. I'm guessing. No, no. Okay. <laughs> this is like like an unrelated two brothers that's just like the first group of kids that all get murdered. There's like a whole extended scene where Arlie Ermy is the sheriff who is torturing these boys, but he does way more of his like army drill sergeant shtick. And it's just that whole like, should you listen to and obey authority just because they're authority? Like it's all of that shit. So it's very much just trying to comment on the war and it's maybe like 25% successful at that but everything else is just really dull really boring it kind of ends like a wet fart it wasn't interesting so now we jump to texas chainsaw just texas chainsaw sometimes it's texas chainsaw 3d because it was released in 3d i didn't realize it was released in 3d are you kidding me yes and this is one from 2013 i believe this one basically acts as if it is a direct sequel to the original texas chainsaw no texas chainsaw to No Leatherface 3. It's not at all connected to the Michael Bay movies. So this is, again, kind of pulling a later Halloween's movies, right? Where it's right. basically just saying, like, no, this is the actual Texas Chainsaw 2. But I'm guessing this one actually isn't good. There is some interesting stuff in this one, I will say. I do not think the movie was great. It was certainly not really filled with any kind of tension. It was really not that scary. But I would 
say it had at least some interesting ideas. So it starts immediately after the first movie. Literally, the cops show up at the house. Leatherface has returned to the house and is in the basement. The rest of the Sawyer family is holed up in the house gunfight standoff with the cops then a lynch mob kind of shows up that's also there to like take out the family and everything just goes sideways the house is burned down all the family is murdered dot 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 except for this baby one of the lynch mob guys takes the baby fast forward to like now basically there's some interesting little bits like bill mosley from the second one who played chop top is playing drayton sawyer the cook so that's okay fun right that's a fun cameo Gunnar Hansen, who played Leatherface in the first one, is just another member of the Sawyer family who's there at the beginning. So, okay, again, fun cameos. It's at least the original house, so that's also, again fun, whatever. So again, it, it fast forwards to modern day. Alexander Daddario ends the baby, essentially. She inherits this giant fancy mansion from the other side of her family. Apparently there was like <laughs> a super wealthy rich side of the family, and then there was the Sawyers, who were like the dirt people who worked at the slaughterhouse, right? So of course she and her friends pile up in the van. They drive all the way down to Texas and go back there. She finds out that she's this long Sawyer child. Turns out Leatherface has still been living in the basement in his own weird little dungeon the entire time and they let him loose. So now Leatherface is running around murdering everybody dot dot dot. Some ideas I think are kind of interesting like what the fuck has he been doing this entire time right? Yeah. This idea <laughs> of family lineage is kind of interesting and it sets up an interesting potential sequel but then goes nowhere. So I don't know it was definitely one of those we shot this on the cheap in Shreveport, Louisiana, and there's an R&B star in it, and that's the big name because this was back before anybody knew who Alexander Daddario was. It's fine. It is... It's fine, TM, in bold print. It is on Peacock, if you don't mind watching it with ads. And the last one, just called Leatherface, it is also a prequel that completely rewrites all the fucking history again. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. And I mentioned Kendisha on our last episode, which was on Shudder. And I mentioned, hey, I would maybe like to see some of the other stuff these guys have done. Turns out, this is one of the movies that they did, and it's also, like, at best, it's fine TM. It's okay at best. This is the 2017 one, right? Yes. That came out, because I remember this one being fairly recent. Yeah, so Steven Dorff is this, like, way over-the-top vengeful sheriff who has a thing for the family because they murdered his daughter. So he is way going outside the bounds of the law, literally executing prisoners right in front of all the other deputies, and they're all just like, Sheriff, what the fuck? And he's just like, I'm gonna get my revenge, like that kind of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Lily Taylor is the matriarch of the Sawyer family, but she's given about the level of yelling, screaming, southern accent, foaming at the mouth lady, as you can imagine. Right. But the whole majority of the plot is little baby Leatherface, as a kid, murders somebody. The family forces him to kill somebody. And so, again, the, like, law steps in. They take baby Leatherface away and put him in, like, a juvie psychiatric thing. And it 
fast forwards to him as a teenager. You know, there's like a breakout, essentially. So all of these like troubled youths are on the run, dot, dot, dot. There is a really lame twist, like three quarters of the way through where I was just kind of like, okay, fuck this movie. (laughs) And I'm not going to say what it is, but there was a really dumb twist in it. Just kind of a weird, cheap, let's just do this out of left field because that'll throw people off. And it also just kind of ends like a wet fart uninterestingly and again rewrites all of the history in a way that's not interesting or intriguing and of course it's also another dead end because they are not doing anything with this one in terms of sequelizing it or continuing that storyline or anything else so you know it's it's interesting and i think we've mentioned this on the show before fucking child's play and saw might be the most consistent side Sagas, franchises of horror shit. Halloween's a fucking mess. Friday the 13th is a fucking mess. Hellraiser is a fucking mess. Texas Chainsaw is a fucking mess. So it's wild that, you know, they're that inconsistent. Because Texas Chainsaw, you could do sequel after sequel after sequel and just have it escalate and just have it just be more of the same. I just don't get why, like, all the sequels, every other one is just trying to, like, reboot, restart, retell the entire story from scratch. Like, every one is just trying to be a fresh start instead of just continuing with the fucking story. Yeah, now we have a uh, one coming out, what, this year? Yeah. Called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That they shot in fucking, like, Hungary. Yeah, it's supposed to be a direct sequel to the 1974 original and it disregard all the other films. So yeah. kind of like what Halloween just did. Well, again, also like what Texas Chainsaw 3D did. Like, it's the same <laughs> fucking thing. Uh, yeah, so it's getting bogged down. And yes, this is our recommendation section. And granted, we are kind of dunking on these later films of these franchises. But, you know, we have to kind of talk about that because, like, if you're a fan of slasher movies, you're going to want to watch them. I mean, even the ones that are bad are still fun. But, like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting to see these messes come out of these series just because the need of sequelization and, like, continuation of the franchise above all else is, like, the main priority for so many studios to just churn them out. It doesn't even matter, like, what the fucking canon is anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, it is, like you said, it is kind of batshit. The ones that are actually at least consistent, (laughs) like Child's Play. Yeah. So, anywho, I think that's going to be that. So, let's move on. Let's move on before we go any further. Okay, so kind of like we did on the first episodes, well, I guess not first episodes, but in the main episodes, I guess, for the last two years of Season of Spoop, let's talk a little bit of history before we get into this movie. So, werewolves are pretty fucking rad, right? I think we can both agree on that. But the cool thing is, werewolf shit has been around for a long goddamn time, believe it or not. Yeah, the folklore surrounding werewolves. It's pretty old, actually. Yeah. So, werewolf legends have been around since ancient Greece, which is where the term lycanthrope specifically comes from. Greek geographer Pausanias detailed the deeds of King Lycaon of Arcadia, who is transformed into a wolf after sacrificing a child on the altar of Zeus. (laughs) 
<laughs> Ovid's Metamorphosis also tells a similar tale. Werewolf folklore emerged in Europe from pagan Germanic warrior legends and along the Caucasus where all the European and Indo cultures kind of collided. Buchard von Worms and Berthold of Regensburg both explicitly used the term werewolf in their writings in the 11th and 13th centuries so literally it's a term that's been around for almost a thousand years scandinavian vikings spoke of the ulf hednar which were berserker warriors who wore wolf hides and were supposedly like invincible the folklore spread across europe kind of alongside witchcraft folklore as the continent was becoming more and more christianized well and i wonder like how it coincided also with vampire folklore as well from what i could kind of see in a lot of places vampires and werewolves were kind of mixed and one in the same like yeah in some places they were even referred to by the same term but witchcraft explicitly was kind of its own thing gotcha yeah because i i saw a lot of overlap between werewolves and vampires the whole idea of a vampire being able to transform into a wolf as part of their powers yeah i was just curious when there was a deviation between the two and if that's more of like a modern spin of the folklore of where they're kind of more separated now it's definitely more of a modern kind of split also i mean obviously vlad the impaler being like a specific reference point for vampire stuff that is like its own separate thing but werewolves are definitely like very closely associated with witchcraft for a lot of different reasons they were also lumped in with a lot of the same trials that were going on across europe for hundreds of years you know not as frequently as witchcraft trials but they were still mixed in there i mean obviously like it was all an excuse for the church to kind of root out anyone who was butting against against the status quo. Probably the most famous, or most notorious, rather, of these trials was the Peter Stump, or Peter Stube trial. It's one of the most well-documented cases, apparently, um, although most of the sources are now supposedly lost. But he was a German serial killer who was accused of werewolfery, witchcraft, incest, and cannibalism, and would be known as the Werewolf of Bedburg. In other words, he's guilty of having a good time. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, uh, I mean... Yeah, I know. I'm, let me keep going. That was, that was a low-brow so. joke. Yeah. <laughs> he claimed that the devil gifted him with a magic belt that enabled his transformation... Okay, yeah, see, that that sounds pretty rad, though. I got, like, a pretty metal, fucking yeah. belt, and I can just turn into a wolf band? Okay, cool. He also claims to have killed and eaten 14 children and two pregnant women. Ooh, yeah, that's, uh. that's where it's no longer quite metal. Yeah. <laughs> Aside from his torture confessions, the main evidence linking his werewolf identity was that, supposedly, a wolf was caught at one of these murders, and its left paw was cut off before they were able to kill it. And then Peter was also missing a left hand after that point dot 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 which is where his surname Stumpf came from it's a literally German for his name is fucking Peter Stump (laughs) Peter Stump yeah not quite the most badass name for the original werewolf (laughs) yeah he was executed alongside his daughter and mistress his flesh was peeled off Wait, wait, wait wait hold up hold up why did they execute his daughter and mistress that doesn't seem fair I mean 
A, it's the church. So yeah. again, it's just you're guilty by association, but supposedly the incest factor was with his daughter. And then again, I didn't say wife, I said mistress. So I know, but like, like I said, the church just lumped everybody in. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, his flesh was peeled off with hot pincers while he was strapped to the wheel. His limbs were all crushed with the blunt side of an axe. He was beheaded, and then he was fucking burned. So they like made fucking sure with this guy. <laughs> Werewolf Lord is also strong in the British Isles and France. Um, one of the most well-known tales out of France is that of the Beast of Gévaudan, which we actually watched recently. Scream Factory just put out Brotherhood of the Wolf on Blu-ray, which is a movie version of that entire story of a beast roaming the countryside in France and, you know, murdering people. These two outside guys brought in to uh, get it taken care of. Turkey... As well, there were shamans who were said to transform into the Kurtadam. In the Americas, the Navajo people believed in the Maikab, who were witches who transformed into wolves. Other First Nations tribes obviously believed in stuff like the Wendigo. The French brought the legend of the Lugaru to Canada and Louisiana, which is where Rougarou comes from. The, the swamp werewolf. <laughs> yeah. In Mexico, it is known as the Nagual. And in Haiti, there is a legend called Jerouge, which is red eyes who steal babies in the night. So, yeah, kind of interesting, like, how widespread werewolf lore is across the entire world, right? And obviously, like, people who shape change into animals is even more broadly a worldwide phenomenon in terms of our, like, lore and mythos. No, well, cryptids in general, too. Yeah. Anywhere you go, there's a regional cryptid and there's probably some variant of werewolf yeah. pretty much anywhere. I'd mentioned the Rougarou, which we've joked about a few times, Louisiana, New Orleans legend, but it basically really is just a werewolf that lives in the swamp. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there, there, there seem to be a lot of those regional variants. I've always wondered too, like, I didn't realize that skinwalkers were like technically their own different cryptid from even werewolves too, so. But it's all, it all kind of ties back in, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's cryptids all the way down, baby. Modern researchers seem to think that some possible explanations were real-life ailments like rabies and hypertrichosis, which is rapid, insane hair growth all over your body. The Greeks believed lycanthropy could be cured by simply physically exhausting the victim. Which is funny, because that is exactly how we get our dogs to, like, chill the fuck out in the evening. <laughs> In Europe, Wolfsbane could also be a potential cure. There's also just traditional exorcisms, speaking the victim's Christian name three times, straight up just conversion to Christianity, apparently, or just a simple scolding. Just be like, no, bad werewolf, and then they'll be like, you know, and just go back to human form. (laughs) Yeah, sure, go home. The term werewolf was even used by the Third Reich during World War II because it was the code name for one of Hitler's fortresses. And Operation Werewolf involved a commando force that would stay behind and operate within Germany during the late stages of the war as the Allies were all advancing into the country. Dude, is this where, like, that pulpy, like, werewolves of the Third Reich, all that kind of stuff comes from? Probably so. And, like, please give me that fucking movie. Like, I just need Rob Zombie's werewolf women of the SS shit from the Grindhouse movies. Like, I need that as, like, an actual blown-out feature 
please, anybody, fucking give me werewolf Nazis being mowed down by, like, Nick Cage. But, you know, overall, I thought this was a pretty good way to kind of cap this off. Bram Stoker himself, author of Dracula, described the myth best as, quote, voice to the anxieties of the age and fears of the late Victorian patriarchy. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty yep. much fucking makes sense. Yeah, that nails it. So, yeah, that's a little bit of a werewolf background. And now let's actually get into the movie. So, yeah, like you mentioned earlier, we are going to be covering The Wolfman from 1941, directed by George Wagner and written by Kurt Siedmack. This is, of course, the main Universal Monsters one that we all kind of know and love and people keep going back to. But there are a few other early ones that we'll kind of discuss in tandem with this as well. So, yeah, here's a taste of what you can expect. Seven jugular. Is that the way Jenny Williams was killed? Yes. Find something? Animal tracks. Whoever is beaten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, don't hand me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf beat you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. You wouldn't want to run away with a murderer, would you? Oh, Larry, you're not. You know you're not. I killed Bela. I killed Richardson. If I stay here any longer, you can't tell who'll be next. So, The Wolfman. I was reading that this is technically the second Universal Pictures werewolf movie behind Werewolf of London from 1935. Correct. But anytime like, you look up werewolves in cinema, The Wolfman is probably the main thing, main example of what really helped bring werewolves to the silver screen and kind of popularized the monster in general. Would you agree with that? Although I did read that Werewolf of London was also commercially successful when it dropped, but like, I feel like The Wolfman kind of has more standed the test of time than even Werewolf of London. So Werewolf of London actually was not that successful when it came out. Oh, it was less commercially successful. Okay. Correct. And they had plans to make a sequel, but did not actually go from there. And that's one of the ones that I did kind of check out. So supposedly that is the first on-screen depiction of an actual bipedal werewolf because some of the earlier ones I mean just looking through a lot of these early ones leading up to the Wolfman in 1941 most of them were silent movies that are now lost there's just not that many early options before the Wolfman other than Werewolf of London. The first one from 1913 just called The Werewolf sounds pretty fucking rad. It uh, featured a female Native American werewolf based on an 1898 story by H. Bogrand. The film is considered lost. Then there is The White Wolf, a.k.a. The White Hunter, which was also inspired by Navajo legends of a medicine man who can transform into a werewolf. Also a lost film. 
The Lugaru, a French silent film based on the Wolfman, considered lost. It's just this whole list of all these old ones that are not accessible. Yeah. But again, yeah, Werewolf of London was the first universal one, and I honestly enjoyed it a good bit. I've seen images from this one. I've seen the makeup before, but I had not actually watched it until just now. This one came out in 1935, so this one is still after Dracula and Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. So, I mean, this one's definitely, like, later in the cycle, and the Wolfman that we're covering is even later, which is interesting, because everybody assumes that they all happened around the same time. I didn't realize that, yeah. But the Wolfman came out a solid decade after those other movies, and frankly, Creature from the Black Lagoon came out even, even later in the 50s. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting to see these movies all kind of dropping one by one, because then they all start crossing over with each other and it's kind of like an it, oh, yeah. it, it is like the original like shared universe of the universal totally. monsters this is really where it starts too it's like the mcu of the 40s and 50s yeah oh yeah yeah and this is really where it starts because the sequel to the wolfman frankenstein meets the wolfman is really where everything starts heavily crossing over but yeah werewolf of london was fairly interesting it's a botanist explorer guy who goes to tibet to get this rare moon flower that he believes is going to be a cure for all kinds of diseases and ailments. While he's there, he is bitten by a werewolf, becomes a werewolf, and turns out the moon flower is also some kind of ancient cure for lycanthropy. You know, obviously there's some dated stuff to it and some interesting, like, if you know what you're looking at, things like, you know, it opens and it's like, okay, it's Tibet, 19, you know, whatever. And then you just see the Vasquez rocks in California that you've seen in, like, a a gajillion other fucking movies, right? And it's people speaking in, like, perfect English, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I did kind of find interesting was that the moon is always shown as full, but it's never explicitly said that the full moon has anything to do with the victim transforming, which is also true in The Wolfman. Never explicitly is full moon ever mentioned. That is something that they actually retconned into all the sequel movies later. Ah, uh, yeah. Which just says when the autumn moon is bright, right? Not the full moon. And they even, like, re that little nursery rhyme for all these later sequels because they used it in every single one of them. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. So you know that one too, huh? <laughs> of course. <laughs> but also too, like at the end, he's killed by just a normal gunshot. The police show up as he's about to murder his love and they shoot him with normal gun. So there's no silver bullet stuff to this one either. You know, there's nothing different there. What did fucking kill me though, and this is something that's also in The Wolfman. During his first transformation in The Wolfman, he's wearing just his tank top and his pants. But then as soon as you see him in full running around, he's like got a buttoned up shirt and everything. So clearly once he transformed he was like well i gotta put on some real clothes before i go out <laughs> same fucking thing happens in werewolf of london where he like freaks out in his lab transforms and then is like i'm about to go out and roam the night hold on i need my scarf and he puts on his scarf from the rack and he's like i need my cap and i need my cloak <laughs> he needs to hide himself yeah he gets fucking <laughs> dressed up every time he goes out this is a minor gripe and granted this is a critique on a movie from 1941 but i mean it's also like something that i kind of was a little eye-rolly an american werewolf in london werewolves don't seem as threatening as i want them to be in these movies <laughs> like 
I feel like a werewolf needs to be like an unstoppable killing machine. In this movie, a dude just gets beat by a cane. Granted, it's made of silver, but like, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of the same thing with a lot of these older movies. I mean, most of the time when you see the wolfman attacking, he's literally just running up to somebody and grabbing like, them by the throat and them. just shaking yeah. them. You know, yeah. like there's no like ripping of the guts or tearing throats out or anything like that. And I don't need that, especially in like a movie this old in a black and white, the OG Universal monster movie. Don't need like blood and guts, but it would be nice to be like, oh shit, why aren't my bullets completely putting him down yet? Sure, yeah. Again, in Wolfman, he steps in a trap and literally just rolls on the ground for like 30 seconds. Yeah. Basically exactly what I do whenever I like, you know, stub my toe. <laughs> if you're wondering, like, no, this is not a scary movie at all in the modern lens. It's fun. But it is a movie that absolutely needs to be revisited. It's very short. And this was something I wanted to ask you. Were movies back in the day, like, a lot shorter? Because this, yes. this was barely an hour long. Yes. Um, it was a very short watch. It was easily digestible, easy to follow along too pretty fun yeah it was very dated but you know it was still well acted uh, lon cheney jr i didn't realize was the wolf man until i started watching this i also love that dracula himself bella lugosi shows up in this movie for about mm, five minutes <laughs> like is killed off playing a character named bella yeah yes. yeah but there's a lot of especially like film buffs out there like you got to revisit the classics like this from time to time and i feel like this is a great way to like if you're gonna follow along with us and like make werewolves kind of part of your movie consumption this halloween this would be a good one to kick off start at the very original totally. this and werewolf of london like see the origins of werewolves in cinema but yeah it, it was surprisingly lore heavy like i didn't expect it to be so dripped in lore granted yes i know it's probably like a lot of hollywoodization americanized stuff but like even just the poem itself felt like they were really trying to like capture the folklore of the werewolf yeah and i really appreciate that for a movie like this old but yeah it's not at all scary i mean it's a movie made in 1941 black and white the effects of the werewolf itself are still pretty fun he's more of a wolf man than a werewolf as like we know it now yeah. in modern times but like it, it would be a really fun like costume to put together for like halloween even this is a dumb nitpick and this is totally just a weird personal to me thing but his makeup looks good but the hair bugs me his weird little like poofy slight afro right because that's exactly what my hair looked like when I was in fucking elementary school. <laughs> and I hated my hair back then. That was one of those things that, like, has always, even since I was a kid, I was just like, man, Wolfman's got my hair. I don't like it. <laughs> and I will post a picture on Twitter of one of my middle school pictures if anybody is interested. But yeah, totally the same hair. A small gripe I had. He was in his room. And at this point, he realized he was a werewolf. And he was watching, like, his own legs transform. And I love how it shows mid-transformation like his legs are, are pretty hairy and my hairy ass watching I was like what's the problem like he looks like yeah. my legs right now <laughs> this looks normal yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, just as like a quick synopsis. So, Larry Talbot returns to his ancestral home in Wales, which it's not ever made explicit in the movie that this is Wales, right? And nobody has an accent beyond like the gypsy lady. <laughs> yeah. After the death of his older brother, he is going back to like make things up with his father and take his place on the family estate and, you know, take over the family, you know, name and lands and everything else. Um, then, of course, he is attacked by a werewolf, becomes a werewolf, starts murdering people, da 
da da and then he gets caught, right? So, I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. This is the prototypical version of this story. Like you were saying prototypical, it is the proto of a lot of stuff. And the thing I love about this, and you see this a lot in, I think, horror movies where someone turns into the monster kind of against their own will. It is like a tragic hero who is cursed and doomed from the beginning. Yeah. And like the movie makes no effort to like say like he can change his fate. This is going to be his fate. It's just a question of like what's going to happen. Will he have to die? Will someone else have to die before he dies, et cetera, et cetera. Even this movie and like an American Werewolf in London pulled it off really well too. But in this movie, it was so interesting to see like how this curse was above not only his head, but like it seemed like his family's because it starts off with his brother dying in an accident. And it just feels like his family is cursed because there's even like people making allusions to that throughout the movie. Uh, There's always been a cloud hanging over his father head and like it's yeah. you know spread through his family it's interesting to see that kind of curse quote-unquote literally manifest itself in his character when he becomes the wolf man it's like a tragic love story in the backdrop of this horror movie which i find always fascinating how often like when man becomes monster movies do this or there usually is like a tragic love story that kind of is tied together with the transformation yeah interesting too though that you bring up the idea that the family is cursed because it you know that's never explicitly part of this movie it's just something that kind of goes by in passing that you can maybe say like oh yeah maybe there's something going on because he is explicitly bit by a werewolf and then turns (laughs) into a werewolf and they never make any implications about his brother's death being tied to anything specific but the 2010 remake that joe johnson directed does explicitly set all of that stuff up like it does very very much tie everything that's going on to his family yeah and that's kind of all i'll say i mean if you want to watch that one it's enjoyable watch it but yeah that movie does definitely explicitly like underline this is a family curse kind of thing what i like about this and i don't know again if this was a purposely a creative choice or just again just kind of limitations of filmmaking at the time but the thing i like is how there's so much story before the camera rolls in this movie yeah. that they just kind of say in passing and you can kind of leave up to your own devices as to what happened and what i mean by that is one example is what happens with his brother and like his dad kind of being sort of cryptic about like the family tragedies that have occurred throughout their life that's all just part of the backdrop but never really super explored and the other one is bella the story of bella like how did he become werewolf yeah. why is he cursed like this he's only in this movie for five minutes but i'm like after watching it i was like i want to like know more about that character and how he got this fate was he married to this other gypsy lady or no he was her son actually now i think about it or it's implied that he was her son and what's their story again all of that is just set up and shown you or like said in passing and dialogue but again there just feels like there was all this history and a living breathing world there before the camera even started rolling for the movie and i really appreciate that and honestly i don't know if i wanted to actually be explored in any remakes or sequels or whatever like i think it's nice to have there is just the backdrop something else that's interesting too like i mentioned he is explicitly bitten by a werewolf in this and that's how it's transmitted but that's not always been standard lore either how you become a werewolf there's like a million different variations on that but apparently the idea of 
lycanthropy transmitting through a bite is a fairly modern invention to the lore. It was more commonly a straight-up result of practicing black magic or witchcraft, or literally a curse. Literally, this is a curse put on your family, you're gonna be a wolf man, right? And with it being transferred through bite, I also wonder if some of that comes from like what you were saying as early cases of rabies, maybe being a, a possibility for a werewolf yeah. back in the day as an explanation. But I wonder if, you know, something with rabies transferring has something to do with that. That very well could be the case, especially since they had no idea that rabies was actually a thing. It would have yeah. seemed like, oh, he got bit by a wolf and now he became like a wolf. But the other werewolf movie that I watched is the Hammer werewolf movie, Curse of the Werewolf. So this one very, very much sets the entire thing up as being a curse explicitly and not any kind of transmission of werewolf DNA, virus, bite, whatever, right? The origin in this one is very brutal and lurid and literally rapey. It's literally like this traveling bum guy who wanders into the court of this super shitty aristocrat guy and him and all of his court treat him terribly, throw him in the dungeon, forget about him to the point where he becomes this mad raving lunatic man and this mute girl that had been caring for him since he was young, also accidentally gets thrown in the cell with him as punishment, and he literally, like, fucking attacks and rapes her, and then she becomes pregnant, and the baby then ends up in the care of this rich man and his nurse lady, and they raise the kid as their own, essentially. Damn, I didn't think uh, Hammer horror films were this exploitative. So, I've seen this one before, but once I was re-watching it the other night, I kind of wondered, like, did I see this on TV maybe and some of this was edited out because I mean the movie's very explicit about what's happening it's just not explicit in showing it to you necessarily but yeah it's very much the idea of a curse transmitted to this kid there is no actual wolf werewolf anything involved with him becoming a lycanthrope like it literally just starts with oh yeah a dead cat showed up oh yeah some dead chickens showed up what's going on we don't know and then like little kid with fangs foaming at the mouth staring at the moon right <laughs> so it's like 45 yeah. minutes of all this setup and then in the latter half is where the like adult version of the kid comes in played by fucking oliver reed <laughs> he's pretty great in the movie every time that there's a werewolf transformation every time somebody's like oh it looks like there's a full moon out it just cuts to him just intensely staring ahead off into the distance, eyes bugging out, and he is just scotch sweating, just pouring sweat, just that drunk, you know, Oliver Reed kind of sweatiness. And then, you know, he turns into a werewolf and runs around and then just chokes people. <laughs> we talked about it earlier, but again, like, because of the limitations of effects in these early werewolf movies, it is just a dude and a bunch of hair running around growling and choking people. Yeah. <laughs> You do see a few scenes of him, like, putting his face down on somebody's neck and just going, to yeah. that's kind of about it. Yeah, right. His werewolf 
werewolf makeup is rad as fuck, though, I will say. Like, just Google Curse of the Werewolf and check out that makeup, because that shit's rad. So anyway, that's the other, like, old werewolf movie that I checked out that I kind of purposely wanted to talk about while we are discussing old werewolf movies with this episode. We may not necessarily get around to ever covering those, but since we are talking about some early werewolf attempts, this would be a good episode to bring those up on. But that one stood out because it was explicitly a curse and there was no actual bite or werewolf right. or wolf involved. And also to that point, with it being more exploitative in that regard, at least like or having being more lurid in how the curse is transferred and everything. It is very interesting to see in this werewolf movie in The Wolfman how kid friendly, at least to modern times, kid friendly this movie actually kind of is. Sure. Yeah. Uh, maybe not kid kid friendly, but like it's pretty PG and people are dying yeah. left and right in this movie. You know me, I would say kid kid because I was a kid kid when yeah. I watched this. And I remember in our like elementary school library, we had these books that were like a story picture book of this movie. And they had them for Dracula and Frankenstein and Mummy and this, right? And I used to rent those books all the fucking time from my elementary school. So yeah, like I would agree with you. This is a good throw this on with the kids kind of thing. It doesn't get too extreme at any point. Yeah, and for a movie that is exploring an affair as well as the person she's having an affair with becoming a wolfman and going on a murder spree, it's not lurid. It's not bloody at all. The horror itself is the most dated part. Just again, it is just kind of a guy who looks really hairy running around growling and strangling people. But like none of that is even menacing. Even when he's stalking people, it's not that scary. But like it's just fascinating to me like how timeless this movie still remains regardless of all that. And again, how like it was able to explore werewolf lore and really bring it to the movie screen without being so lurid and without being so bloody and violent. I don't know. It's just interesting to see that a movie was able to world build this well this long ago without a lot of the stuff we kind of take for granted now in horror movies and the modern times. Because when you see a horror movie in modern times, you're expecting some blood. You're expecting maybe some sexual nature to it. And it's really not like it, it really is just doomed romance and doomed fate and like how this guy deals with that and resolves it it is just a guy who just got dealt a bad hand because it doesn't seem like he's a bad guy in any way like yeah he's trying maybe a little too hard to woo this woman who is <laughs> technically engaged yeah. and he does kind of start off by like peeking at her through a window with a telescope but granted that started off as an innocent mistake <laughs> you want to go take a walk in the park with me yeah no fuck off okay cool I'll see you at 8pm no fuck off <laughs> some casual old just sexual harassment yes yay that's honestly the most dated and like problematic stuff of this movie is is that whole aspect to it but otherwise it's a fairly like i hate to say innocent for a horror movie but like it does have this classic innocence that you can only find in movies this old which is sometimes innocent but naive the naive nature is how he meets up with this woman and like tries to woo her and i love when they're like yeah let's go stroll they go out for the stroll and she brings her friend and and they go to get their fortunes told by the gypsies but i love when they're like strolling through the park or the woods it looks fucking horrifying because it's like twisted yeah. <laughs> trees and fog everywhere and it just like looks like a horror movie set all that low-lying werewolf fog yeah. yeah which okay apparently that shit was chemical as hell i bet toward the end where evelyn anchors is supposed to like faint during the final confrontation she you know faints and falls down but while she's under that haze of all that low-lying chemical fog that they pumped onto the set she literally passes the fuck out from it <laughs> 
So they they weren't using dry ice yet, huh? Yeah, in between <laughs> takes when, you know, all the techs were running around resetting things, somebody just realized, oh wait, where did Evelyn go? And then, like, Finder passed out. So uh, she apparently had a pretty rough time with this production because she and Lon Chaney also did not get along. Wow, really? Yeah, he basically treated her like shit the entire time because the studio gave her his dressing room and, in general, he was just annoyed by her. So he was constantly, like, calling her shitty nicknames and, like, jumping out in the makeup and scaring her and stuff like that. It's funny because they have pretty decent chemistry together on screen. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And to that point, too... They worked on two other movies together. The Ghost of Frankenstein, which Evelyn Ankers and Ralph Bellamy were both in with him again. And then Son of Dracula also has Evelyn Ankers in it again. And The Frozen Ghost also has Evelyn Ankers. So, like, they literally worked on three other movies together, despite really being at each other's throats during this shoot, apparently. The other detail that I found funny while researching for this was there was supposed to be a sequence where the wolf man fights a fucking bear (laughs) that would have been great that didn't make it to the movie because while they were shooting the bear got loose the bear chased Evelyn anchors up a ladder. Oh, fuck. And then it ran <laughs> off into the fucking woods. Wait, so they had a real bear on set yes. to film that? Wow, so you know, you imagine if they actually tried to film that, that bear would have murdered either Lon Chaney <laughs> or whatever poor, like, bastard was his stunt double. <laughs> there is apparently, like, a brief glimpse of this footage in the original trailer for the movie, but obviously the scene was cut. So anyway, yeah, uh, Evelyn anchors sounds like she had a rough, rough time making this movie. <laughs> so as far as the making of this goes, like I mentioned earlier, it goes late in the cycle because by this point, the Invisible Man's been out, Dracula's been out, the Mummy's been out, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, like all of those have come out already, right? So this one is years later. Then like Dracula like really fucking changed the game. Yeah, all those were super big. They were all very popular, made money, and kind of pushed the limits of what you could kind of get away with in terms of horror stuff. And horror is not new to movies. I mean, there have been horror movies since the beginning of film. So it's not like it was necessarily new. It was just kind of the first big mega hits that canonized all of that. So anyway, this one was written, like I mentioned earlier, by Kurt Seodmak, and he wrote basically all the fucking Universal Monster movies kind of from this point on. Basically starting with Return of the Invisible Man, he wrote basically everything from there on. He fled Germany before World War II as the Third Reich was taking power. He kind of realized like, oh, things are getting bad so uh bye and he immigrated to england and then eventually to the u.s which a lot of artist types and filmmakers and writers and those kind of people a lot of people bailed when the third reich took power and spread out but he said that the themes of the wolfman were kind of partially inspired by his experiences during this time of being this marked man in germany and having to like flee the country and never feel safe anywhere that he was and that's interesting because they're literally like a part of this is when someone's cursed there's literally the, the pentagram the mark yeah so that's some interesting shit on a less interesting note but 
kind of also hilarious note, uh, looking at his IMDb, he has story by credits for a Godzilla versus the Wolfman movie. <laughs> what? That looks like it came out in the 70s, but didn't actually come out, dot, 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 where a werewolf goes to Japan, becomes irradiated, and grows to be, like, oh, massive. fucking, if this movie is somewhere... We need to watch it. Holy <laughs> shit. Are you kidding me? Dude, the photos look great because you have the regular Toho Godzilla, but then you have this giant buff as fuck werewolf furry dude that is just <laughs> grabbing Godzilla by the tail and slinging him around. Um, looks pretty rad. And one of the photos on IMDb is just Nick Cage holding a poster for that movie and giving a thumbs up and smiling. <laughs> I'm here to look at the moon and kick Godzilla's ass, and I'm all out of moon. <laughs> Basically. This movie was directed by George Wagner, who did Man Made Monster with Lon Chaney before this, and Horror Island. And then, of course, you know, like we've mentioned, the, the movie stars Lon Chaney Jr., specifically. His father... Lon Chaney, a.k.a. the Man of a Thousand Faces. He really is like one of the first horror megastars. He was massively important in pushing movie makeup and effects forward. He was a huge pioneer in a lot of the crazy techniques and shit. Like, I mean, you can like look up and read more stuff about this, but he would like use wire to pull his face in different directions and glue all that shit down. And he would put egg whites in his eyes to like color his eyes weird because they didn't really have contact lenses in the same way back then. Most people would know him from The Hunchback of Notre Dame that came out around that time and the original Phantom of the Opera, not the Phantom of the Opera with Claude Rains, who plays Sir John Talbot in this movie, which is technically like the canon Universal Monsters version of Phantom of the Opera. The classic of the mask getting taken off and like him turning around and having like his spooky ooky face, that's Lon Chaney. That's yeah. Lon Chaney Jr.'s father. That face uh, of Chaney as the Phantom of the Opera, like, is still pretty terrifying yeah to think like that was so long ago it's still pretty solid scare um there's also a pretty good picture for lon cheney on his wikipedia article it was a picture of him from like the 20s holding his personal makeup kit and he like looks fucking menacing as fuck his smile he has like a pennywise smile <laughs> as he's like showing off like <laughs> his makeup kit but it's a really good black and white picture if you want to check that out but yeah it's interesting like not only was he so instrumental in like movie making and its beginnings and then his son Lon Chaney Jr. like took the ball and ran even further yeah. with like all the shit he was in. Yeah so on that note you know like I mentioned th and these are just Lon Chaney Jr.'s monster credits specifically so man-made monster the wolfman and then that's kind of where we get into like all the different sequels and stuff so Ghost of Frankenstein the Mummy's Tomb, which he was also known for the Mummy movies where he played the Mummy character in a few different ones. Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which that is the first sequel to The Wolfman. Yeah. And that one actually has Bela Lugosi playing Frankenstein's monster. So like weird shakeups of like all these casts going back and forth. So that's like the Avengers. <laughs> oh, no, no, it gets it gets even it gets even better. So yeah. Son of Dracula, The Mummy's Ghost, House of Frankenstein, which that one specifically has John Carradine as fucking Dracula and Boris Karloff showing up just as a mad doctor who wants to take 
all of Dr. Frankenstein's notes and, like, revamp all that bullshit. House of Dracula, which also brings back Carradine as Dracula and Glenn Strange as the monster. The Mummy's Curse, The Frozen Ghost... Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which we will definitely cover that one of these days, because that is kind of the ultimate of the old school monster mash movies, and it's just fun as shit. He also did High Noon, The Black Sleep, The Defiant Ones, The Alligator People, The Haunted Palace, Face of the Screaming Werewolf, in which he plays a mummified werewolf. <laughs> A zombie with a Dracula cape and mummy wrappers. Yes. <laughs> House of the Black Death. My personal fucking favorite, Spider Baby. And then lastly, Dracula versus Frankenstein. So he did a shit ton of these movies. So Bela Lugosi didn't do like any of these other Dracula appearances in any of these other movies? So Bela Lugosi shows back up as his version of Dracula in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Okay. But yeah. through most of these other appearances it is somebody different and a lot of the sequels to this Wolfman movie it is actually John Carradine. So it goes back and forth and same thing with The Mummies. Karloff did kind of the first movie and I don't know that he did any of the sequels. Same with Frankenstein. He played Frankenstein's monster in the first movie in Bride, but I don't think he ever played the character again from there. Dick Foran was originally cast as Larry Talbot in The Wolfman and replaced with Chaney like a week before the production started. Oh, wow. And supposedly, since Universal didn't like do a direct sequel to The Werewolf of London, since it didn't quite work, they were developing another werewolf project with Karloff set to be the main character, and that also just kind of dissolved and didn't go anywhere. Also, too, Chaney was the only actor, going back to that note a second ago, that actually portrayed his character in all the sequels. So, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. He actually plays Wolfman in all of those. He is Larry Talbot in all of those. So it's literally the same guy, same character in every single one of them. Yeah, because I remember him in one of the later interviews during his career, he mentioned how like the Wolfman was his baby, that character yeah. in general. And it's interesting because given like what happens by the end of this movie, like how he comes back, and it might just be one of those things like they just kind of ignored, but like, do they ever explain like, how he didn't die at the end of this movie <laughs> well so yeah i mean at the end of this movie his father sir john like beats him to death with the silver headed cane which that cane is fucking rad that would be such a great movie prop to own it's pretty good so a weird side note apparently that cane which was like a rubber headed cane to keep from hurting people that's the only known surviving prop and the prop master like literally gave it to this little kid who was on set after they were done and he kept it his entire life and then it just got sold to some collector for like millions like a of dollars, dollars right? yeah. <laughs> and i'll watch these too i literally just rewatched some of them this morning because again they're all like an hour and 10 minutes right you can blow through pretty much all of them frankenstein meets wolfman is the next one they literally just go to like the family crypt open it up and then he's alive again and he just finds oh wait shit yeah i got shot as a werewolf and i've basically just been in a werewolf coma but like i don't die now 
now. I am like just the undead, right? So it literally then picks up with him accidentally stumbling into a cave where he finds the Frankenstein monster frozen. He breaks him out of the ice and is like, you have to find your master's notes so that I can figure out if he learned the secret of bringing dead back to life, he can maybe figure out a way to like turn me into mortal again so that I can actually die and have peace. That's pretty rad premise, actually. Yeah. So at the end of that one, and that's the funny thing too, like all these old movies just fucking end. There's no like come down from the ending. They just stop. So at the end of that one, they're like fighting on the bridge of the castle and like a giant river overflows and like washes them away and all this bullshit. So then in the next movie, Boris Karloff is just playing a mad scientist guy looking for all of Frankenstein's notes again. And he and his hunchback assistant happen upon a cave where both the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster I think you referred to him as the undying monster. Like, that was specifically the name that they gave him in that one. Again, just frozen in ice in a cave. <laughs> so he thaws them both out and is just like, all right, cool. Like, Oh, now both of them were frozen in a cave? <laughs> yeah. But Talbot kind of becomes a slight hero in that one because he's trying to kind of stop Karloff from going off the edge and doing all this bullshit. So yeah, those sequels are like totally fun enough. They're fun to throw on in the background and just kind of have on if you want to like set some mood Halloween night this year just throw some of these fucking old black and white movies on and just have them on for atmosphere because they are fun the makeup gets progressively better like and that's why all the attempts at Universal trying to get all this shit rebooted again that's why they keep doing it because these movies were like hugely successful for them back in the day and they made a shit ton of money and a shared universe way before uh, MCU was ever a thing yeah but that's why they keep trying to do it. I mean, there was a weird attempt in the 90s to kind of get everything back up and going again. So there was Jack Nicholson's Wolf. Wait, is that where like Brendan Fraser mommy came from? I think it was supposed to tie into like a second wave that they were trying to do in the early aughts that never really took off. Right. And then there was like the bullshit Dark Universe series from just a couple of years ago. The ones with Alex Magic Blood Kurtzman. <laughs> who did fucking Transformers and the Star Trek reboots and Amazing Spider-Man and the Tom Cruise Mummy. Chris Morgan was like the other producing partner who did Wanted and Fast and Furious... I think four through like all the new ones. I think he literally did everything from like four on and then the mummy and bird box. Like he wrote all those and Aaron Guzikowski was supposed to write it. He's the guy that did prisoners and that HBO sci-fi show raised by wolves that just came out. He was supposed to write it with fucking Dwayne Johnson supposedly like in the lead. And that to me is like a bad no. You want to have a normal guy who becomes bigger than life werewolf not yeah not the fucking rock, the rock. becoming a werewolf <laughs> yeah. that's a bit much and then of course like blumhouse announced last year that they are now developing a wolfman movie that ryan gosling apparently pitched to them and wanted to direct interesting okay. now he's just starring and lee Wanell saw insidious upgrade the invisible man he's directing it and this is going to tie into his invisible man movie this is going to tie into the 
Karen Kasama Dracula movie. So this is like Blumhouse's take on the Universal Monsters because they are a Universal subsidiary company. So, I'm, you know, I'm curious if that's where things go from this point on is here's a five to ten million dollar budget. Make this movie take a slightly different twist on it. And let's go from there. Because honestly, I really enjoyed the shit out of Invisible Man. And I'm very curious to see yeah. where the Kasama Dracula goes. Going back to the Wolfman, though, who, who did the makeup? Because it wasn't the same makeup person from Werewolf of London or were they just like riffing on Werewolf of London? Yeah, no, no. So Jack Pierce did the makeup. Henry Hull is the star of Werewolf of, of, Werewolf London. of London. Yeah, but I remember reading like those two, but like Jack Pierce was the guy who did Werewolf of London's makeup, but he also do the makeup on this movie as well? Yes, and the design for the makeup in this movie, The Wolfman, is what he originally wanted to do in Werewolf of London, but the star, Henry Hull, like, argued against that because literally in the script, people are supposed to still recognize him for who he is in Werewolf mode, and he was just saying, like, you need to see more of me, more of my face. It doesn't need to be so unidentifiable. So they changed up the makeup, and they went with a different design for that one, but then Pierce literally just carried the same exact design that he had originally over to this movie, and it pretty much stays the same. It gets more refined, and the look kind of gets a little more specific throughout all the sequels, but it pretty much stays the same. Pierce did a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he designed the Frankenstein monster for Boris Karloff, yeah, wow. Which, of all of these monsters, I 100% still think that the Frankenstein monster makeup is like by far the creepiest. It is by far the most unsettling and uncanny and weird of all of them. I think the light hits it the best and really gives it some interesting deep creep factor with that makeup that I don't think the rest necessarily get to. Yeah. But yeah, he did a ton of shit. The other interesting cast addition, I guess, I mean, so obviously like we mentioned earlier, Bella Lugosi plays Bella. He pushed really hard to be the lead in this and I honestly don't think that would have worked but he just ended up in the side role we're not even going to get into his stuff because he's got fucking forever and a day that we could talk about too and we'll probably get around to doing him more in depth when we talk about Dracula eventually but the other big role in this movie specifically is Sir John Talbot played by Claude Rains and he was another one of these big genre guys he is the invisible man and he is the Phantom of the Opera so he's literally played two of the main monsters in these Universal Monsters movies and had a role in this. (laughs) He was also in The Adventures of Robin Hood, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Seahawk, Now Voyager, Casablanca, Notorious, and Lawrence of Arabia. So, I mean, Claude Rains had a pretty serious career as well. And I mean, everybody else from there, like Evelyn Ankers, she was in a lot of genre stuff as well. The Invisible Man's Revenge was kind of the other one that she was in that wasn't related to the other four Cheney movies. And then the other person I would mention is Colonel Montford, the like main police detective guy in this, is Ralph Bellamy. Most people are actually going to know him from all of his later shit. I mean, he was big time serious actor back in the day. He was in His Girl Friday, but fast forward like 30 years in his career. He's Dr. Saperstein in Rosemary's Baby. He's in Trading Places and Coming to America. And he's in Pretty Woman, which are all like big 80s movies that that's where most people nowadays are going to know him from. He, his, his last role was in Pretty Woman, actually. I didn't realize yeah. he was still making movies all the way through the 80s. Yeah. Wow. 
Yep. And then as for the movie itself, this movie premiered apparently two days after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Oof. Yeah, Universal was initially hesitant about even releasing it because they thought audiences aren't going to want to see a fucking horror movie during this time of like actual anxiety. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Like the timing of that. But honestly, it turns out it's exactly what fucking people wanted to like escape from reality for a little bit. So this movie was a pretty big hit, you know, and that's something that we still see to this day where like something weird happens in real life. The studio kind of gets cold feet and they either push a movie's release or they pull it in entirely or they demand massive changes to it you know idle hands getting completely buried because it came out the day after columbine is kind of one of those same things where columbine happened and then immediately everybody was like well it's shit like idle hands that causes kids to do this and the movie just tanks yeah so there's been tons of instances of movies getting completely overlooked because of something in real life happening and studios now are like way 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 more you know we're gonna pull the plug at the very last minute you know or we're gonna delay it or something like that so it's interesting that like that's not new behavior from studio heads yeah well and it's interesting though that they decided to like release it and it was exactly what everyone wanted because that goes back to your one of your earliest points that you made on this podcast of just horror is a release valve for like the pressure of anxieties that we carry in us like in our day-to-day lives and yeah i don't know if this was what caused it to be such a hit when it dropped but maybe this was a way for people to get the wartime anxieties that were going on among american people especially after pearl harbor yeah i think it's also interesting how sir john in the movie is kind of the sane one and normally like (laughs) the parent character in these kind of movies is always the one who is crazy it's always you know estranged prodigal child returns home to their parents and either or both of their parents are like full-blown crazy everybody is just like oh that old loon whatever and this is kind of exactly the opposite where he's an astronomer and he's won all these awards he's the one who like kind of looks at everything through a logical lens and even explicitly says like oh yeah these old werewolf legends are probably used to explain you know man's dual personality you know which schizophrenia which that has also been one of the like possible actual real life medical things that people chalked up to being werewolfism right but yeah it was interesting that like he's kind of very much the level-headed one and also he's the one who defeats his son at the end because again it's usually the flip it's usually the parent goes crazy the parents through the problem the parent is the source of the curse and it's the child having to like kill the parent to end everything you know so it's interesting that this is like a flip of that but yeah beyond that the dream montage in this is pretty fucking cool the wolf that attacks cheney is apparently like his own actual dog i was about to ask that because that creature actually looked full-blown like wolfy well the reason for that was in the original version of the script they specifically wanted it to be ambiguous as to whether or not he actually transforms or whether it was just in his head. Oh, that would have been 
kind of cool too though if they went that direction yeah like that would have been way ahead of its time i think yeah but universal specifically was just like no we said the wolf band we got to deliver so we got to actually have him transform i get that and i mean it, it was a hit and now it is a timeless classic so yeah but that's part of the reason why the bella werewolf is just straight up a wolf and not a wolf man because early on yeah it was just supposed to be like ambiguous but it's interesting because i remember watching this being like what if this was just all like psychologically in his head and he's just disturbed and thinks when the murderer comes out it's a wolf yeah there were elements of that in this movie like psychological horror but then he literally does become a wolf man and strangles people so yeah and that poor grave digger already (laughs) like grave digging in like the most like haunted cemetery in the world and then a fucking wolf man just strangles you to death yeah that's unfair (laughs) um and i love how like nonchalant everyone in the town is are they up it's another body looks like another wolf attack yeah this thing's picking y'all off one by one but uh i also dug the hell out of and this is just kind of like that creepy classic gothic style that like mausoleum where they lay out bella's body yeah on that stone slab that whole mausoleum like looked creepy as fuck and who's lighting those torches and keeping them lit is it like the grave digger <laughs> is it the priest that randomly just shows up in that gate who's doing that it's the ghosts they're, <laughs> yeah, just, the they're ghosts. keeping everything lit and then yeah of course the makeup itself is pretty fucking wild jack pierce designed it like we mentioned and turns out practical makeup is still not really any like different than it is now for the most part it still took six hours to apply all the makeup Jeez. and then it took about three to remove all of it so you know imagine in addition to your like 10 to 12 hours of shooting you've got another nine hours of makeup that you got to deal with you know and granted he's probably napping through a lot of it but still that's a lot of time to have to sit in a chair and get makeup put on but i mean that's basically what happens now i mean anytime doug jones has to like get in full body makeup it takes hours hours and hours still that's the techniques have gotten more sophisticated but they haven't necessarily gotten easier even decades and decades later the other part that i always found to be kind of goofy though was the boots he's got the werewolf footy boots and then he's <laughs> yeah. walking like on his tiptoes to create that weird wolf ankle it's a neat touch and it's a very clever way of turning a human ankle into like a weird wolf ankle but man that looks uncomfortable as fuck to like have to walk around in those booty things on your tiptoes the entire time you know yeah and then yeah like i mentioned nothing in this movie like ever says that the transformation has to be triggered by the full moon yeah it's just kind of just says the autumn moon is bright yeah in that final line of the poem but everything like you know being bitten the pentagrams that's all stuff that's kind of an invention of this movie The idea of silver harming a werewolf kind of comes from the beast of Jevadon legend, oddly enough. And that story was being published in books that were appearing during the 1930s. So that's most likely where the writer kind of yeah. saw and read that idea and brought it into the script. So yeah, so yeah, I mean, it's fun shit, right? Yeah, this was a good introduction to uh, Season of Spoop Werewolf Edition. I'm pretty happy that we're doing werewolves this year. I've mentioned it before. I'll say it again. Werewolves are back. 
badass. But yeah, I think that uh, again, if if you are a film buff or you want to like check out where werewolves really came from in cinema, like check out the Wolfman. It's an easy watch. It's a very easy watch. Seventy minutes in and out. It's pretty tight. The datedness of it is not too bad. Like it's not inaccessible, and it's an interesting enough to keep you wanting to watch. It's such a shitty thing to say, and especially like a non-film person thing to say. But like it is sometimes harder to go back and watch older movies. Sure, absolutely. And I didn't feel that way. I didn't get bored. I didn't find any that I thought it was a very enjoyable watch. And maybe that's just because I'm interested in like movie monsters, but it still was pretty fun to watch. Yeah, check out The Wolfman. Yeah, totally. I think we're going to call it here because we've got two more coming this month. And I think there are going to be some very interesting discussions to be had in terms of some of the other themes of werewolf shit that kind of get used. Um, So we're going to save going much deeper for those episodes and have those conversations with those guests. So this is kind of a good jumping on point for the month and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. Cool, cool. Well, that is going to be it for this week's episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me your movie monster boy aaron and my cowardly co-host derek in which we dissect the fears phobias and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres. so once again big shout out to my little brother jesse mansfield aka party gator for providing the bumps at the beginnings and the ends of every episode uh, you can find more of his stuff on Bandcamp under Party Gator, as well as Opossums and any of the other numerous spinoff bands that he's got. Please check him out. Toss him a couple of bucks for some good music. Yep. Don't forget, as far as music goes, we also have our Season of Spoop official playlist that is linked onto the top of our Twitter. We are also going to be throwing it out more often. So you've got plenty, plenty, plenty of spoopy tunes for the spoopy season. So I just added the rap song from the end of Psycho Gorman. Hell yeah. Because that rap song <laughs> is great. It does the like describe the plot of the movie in a in a rap song. Like had like a shark fit. It does exactly that. It's so good. We are also uh, at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. Please follow along there. You can catch us on all the podcast platforms at this point, all the major ones. Please continue to rate and review us specifically on Apple Podcasts. That really helps. And follow us. Don't subscribe to us. It's follow us now on, <laughs> follow on, us. on all these platforms. But yeah, I think there's only one thing left to say. The way you walked was thorny through no fault of your own. But as rain enters the soil, the river enters the sea, so tears run to a predestined end. Your suffering is over, Sally. Now you will find peace. Like tears in the rain. <laughs> That's like what I thought of when I saw it. <laughs>